Father, as we sang this morning, it is only your work that can make us right with yourself that you've done through your son at the cross. And this morning, as we look deeper at all that happened at the cross, would you work in our hearts? If there's one here today, Lord, that does not yet know you by faith in the Son who gave his life for them, Lord, I pray that you would, through your Spirit, do a work in their hearts. And Lord, for the rest of us who may know you and have trusted in you, would you remind us afresh again about the wonder of the gospel, that there's nothing that we bring to you that could ever make us right with yourself, and there's nothing that we bring on our own that would help us as we walk with you, but only through who you are and what you've done and your spirit, we might walk with you and know you and have forgiveness of sin. So we love you and thank you for time and your word this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Wednesday morning, me and a number of guys jumped in a truck early right after Nicholas or as Nicholas was kind of moving through and we traveled into Nicholas uh, to Homa, Louisiana. I don't know if you can help me out back in the back here with my mic. Homa, Louisiana. And so we set off to Homa to help with uh, disaster relief when we worked for a number of days with Samaritan's Purse, great ministry to donate to, great ministry to be a part of, very gospel-centered. And we were thinking and praying about all the work that we would do to help people. And we got there, and the first house we went to on the first day, Miss Cheryl was there. And um, maybe you saw some pictures online but uh, her place was really decimated. Um, they had tried to put a tarp on her house and it was still leaking through. Uh, there were debris everywhere, trees down. When you have 145 mile an hour winds and that's sustained for eight to 10 hours, it does, does damage. And so Miss Cheryl had damage and we got on the roof and tried to help repair the roof and we worked on debris and Ty over here got on the chainsaw and we worked hard on our house. She'd gone through so much, and yet we sat down with Cheryl. And we learned more about her life and come to find out there was more to the hurricane that just happened the two weeks before. You see, in her life, there was much that happened over the last few years. She had lost her son and her daughter-in-law, and she was raising their seven kids, her grandkids, under this roof. And if you went to her house, you would say, I'm not sure that I might live here anyway. Her house was decimated. So what do you do when you confront and you see a person in front of you who is desperate that she has compounded problems in her life, the latest of which is a hurricane? What do you say to a person in that much of a desperate need? And then her cousin on the roof, Harry, 250-pound guy probably, all muscle, worked with his hands his whole life. And he's on a roof and he's helping his cousin because he can't stand to go to his house because he just begins to cry. What do you do? Maybe it's not a hurricane. Maybe your house is fine. Maybe your kids are fine. But what do you do with the desperate needs that arise in your life? Where do you take those? And if you understand rightly what the Bible says, particularly as we've been in Romans and Romans 1 through 3 about our real spiritual state without Jesus, 
We have some compounded problems in our lives. The problem is sin, and that sin separates us from God, and it's more of a compounded problem even in the problems that we live in. And yet there's a solution to that problem that we find in Jesus, that we find in the passage that we will be in this morning. And there's really three main problems that we have. There are more than that. We have a legal problem with God. See, he's the judge, and he's pronounced us guilty before him. And so we have a legal problem. We also have, out of that legal problem, we are, in a sense, in jail spiritually. We're captives because of our sin. And there is no get-out-of-jail-free card. There is no bail money there to bail you out and bail me out. And then there's a religious problem as well before God because God is just. So how does a just God take unjust people and make them right? See, Romans 3, 21 through 31 has some beautiful, one beautiful answer to the dilemma of our sin. Would you turn there with me this morning? Romans 3, and we'll be in verses 21 through 31. On your chair or a chair near you, there's a Bible, uh, page 941 in that Bible if you need it. The words will, many of the words will be up here. But I want to show you the DNA of salvation, the DNA of how we are, can be delivered from the problem of sin, the legal problem we have, the status or financial problem we have, the religious problem we have before God. And this passage is going to deal with all three of those and then give some real life application to how that flushes out in your life and in my life. Romans 3, let me read it, verses 21 through 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. And although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, perhaps you've heard this verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, here's a big word, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Do you remember the first week when we started Romans? And I said to you, if I had one book out of all 66 books, if I only had one book to teach people the word of God, the gospel of God, I would have chosen Romans, hands down. Listen, if I, within the book of Romans, the most, in my opinion, the most important book in the Bible, I would argue, if I had one text in the book of Romans to teach people the truth of the gospel, it would be this text right here. No pressure. 
So look at it with me. I want you to look at the first three or four verses there. And here's your first, we talked about the DNA of salvation. What makes up salvation? Your DNA marker number one is this. And this is an important one. God declares us right before him by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's functionally a street level definition of justification. I know that's a big word. You're gonna be able to go to your really smart Christian friends after today and give them three really big words and show them how smart you are and remind them of these things. Justification, it's a theological term that describes what I just said. That it's God who declares, who is righteous, verse 21, who declares us right before him by his grace through faith in Christ. Let me unpack that for you. Justification is this legal term. So imagine God being a judge and you as a guilty, a guilty person standing before him and the gavel comes down and even in your guilt, he declares you right, not on the basis of your innocence, but on the basis of his son, Jesus, who is righteous. This is the great exchange that we often talk about, how Christ and sing about, how Christ took our place. This is justification, that we are acquitted, not based on our innocence, but based on Christ's innocence, based on Christ being right with God. And how does it come to us? It comes to us by his grace, through faith. Have you ever wondered when you look at scripture and you're trying to make sense of how grace and faith work together, you often see them in a passage together. Let me give you a little bit of a picture. God's grace is like a spring that comes up that God gives, it's a spring, but where does that spring? It has to go somewhere. It goes, how does it get, how does God's grace get to you and to me? It goes through the stream of faith, the channel of faith, and that's how you receive it. Faith is what you are counting on. You're sitting in a chair right now, you've heard this illustration, but you're trusting in that chair to hold you up. It's what you're counting on. That's what faith is, it's belief in Christ. When you come to Jesus, what happens is you turn away from your sin, that's repentance, and you turn to Christ by faith. You're trusting in an object, you're trusting, not in faith in anything, right? You're not putting your faith in the law, see also Romans 2. You're not putting your faith in yourself. You're not putting your faith in Buddha or Muhammad, you're putting your faith in Christ. Notice something, in those four verses you see faith alone. You see grace alone in Christ alone. You see this in other places. Second Corinthians 5 is a text we've gone to before, but it's so important to understand this great exchange in Christ giving us his righteousness that we might be justified before the judge for our sake. He made him who knew to be sin. So Jesus took on our sin as the righteous son of God who knew no sin, that's Jesus, that by in him we might become or have the righteousness of God. So God imparts Christ's righteousness to us. You know what that means? That means God is a merciful, merciful, gracious God who at the cost of his son through faith acquits you, even though you are guilty. And there's a problem with that in a minute that we'll deal with because God is a just God. But you know what that brings to your life? It brings hope. You think about going to trial and being acquitted. You think about the relief that that would bring that person. You think about the hope and the confidence that they now have to walk. 
free. Have you ever had a legal problem where you had to throw yourself at the mercy of the court, as it were? The question I have for you this morning is this. Who are you counting on? You see, all the way through this passage, look at it, that it's by, through faith in Christ that you're justified. It's through faith in Christ, verse 25, that God makes you right. The end of verse 26, by faith in Jesus. The end of verse 27, the law of, not the law, of, but of faith. For one is justified, verse 28, by faith apart from the works of the law. And so God declares us right before him by the spring of grace that we don't deserve, that we can never earn through the channel of faith in Jesus. I want to stop for a minute and talk about justification and how this really plays out in our lives. I don't know how you were raised. Many people were in, in this room were not raised in the church at all. Some of you were raised in the church. Some of you were raised Protestant. And you came, you're in a Baptist church or maybe in a Methodist church or different Protestant churches. And some of you were raised in a Catholic church. I was raised in a home that was Southern Baptist and then my dad got remarried to a, a lady who was Catholic. And so that made for an interesting dynamic in our home. Maybe you have a mixed group. But if you think about it in our country, there's over 170 million Protestants and there are over 70 140 million Protestants and 70 million Catholics. In the world, there are about a billion Protestants and about a billion point three Catholics. And the reason I bring this up is because the biggest distinction, and there are a lot of distinctions between Catholics and Protestants, but the biggest distinction between those two groups of people that the world kind of categorizes under Christianity the biggest distinction is right here, the idea of justification. And this is where those two diverge. And I don't know where you're at. I'm speaking to people that come from different persuasions. But I want to tell you that Protestant doctrine and Catholic doctrine differ right here. In Protestant doctrine, as I've just described, you're justified. And it means that God, with his gavel, declares, declares you right with himself and you're justified by faith alone. And out of that, and here's where Protestants get it wrong, out of that, what ought to come? What ought to come out of justification by faith alone ought to come works. That's what Ephesians 2.10 says after Paul talks about the grace of God given by faith that no one could boast. What's verse 10? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God might be glorified. So out of being justified, declared right, there's works that come out of that. And if those works aren't there, which God measures way better than you and me, by the way, then you have to question whether you've been justified or not. But here's where it turns for Catholics. They believe in justification. Let's be clear. They believe in grace. You understand that? They believe in grace, but they believe that justification is a process that happens by grace through the church, through the seven sacraments of the church. So when you're born, you're, you're sprinkled, and that takes away your original sin. And then you go through confirmation when you hit 12 or 13 to, that you might know the truth. And then you confess your sin 
And if you get married, there's a sacrament of marriage and then last rites and confession and then last rites, the Eucharist. And so justification isn't a declaration, but it's a process through your whole life in which you are being saved. Not which you are being sanctified, but you're being saved. And those are two very different things. So I don't know your background. I am happy to sit and talk with you. I am not saying that there aren't Catholic people that are Catholic or come out of that who know Jesus, but I am saying this, the doctrine on paper is not the gospel. The gospel is God declares you right on the basis of his son, not on, by faith, not on the basis of what you do throughout the course of your life. And so that's a massive question that you should ask yourself. Do I believe in faith alone that ought to produce to the Spirit's work in my life good works because faith without works is absolutely dead. And so I'm happy to talk about that. I'm not ripping on Catholics here. I'm saying in the world that we live in, in our culture that we live in, in the churches that we look at and live in, that's a massive distinction. And the gospel truth is really on the line here to what you understand. And so God declares us right before him by grace through faith in Christ. So we've dealt with this legal problem. But there's another problem. It's the problem that comes out of the legal problem because we're captives and we don't have any bail money. And so what does God do? The second DNA marker in this passage comes in verse 24, that we're justified by grace as a gift. Look at the next phrase. Through, here's a big word. Here's your second big word. Impress your friends and neighbors. Redemption. See that one? That is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is kind of this commercial term. In these days, it was used for the release of a prisoner, a war prisoner, with money. A ransom, we would call that a ransom, that someone's released by giving a ransom for another. That's redemption. And we think about this in terms of what Christ has done for us. Because of our sin, we, the Bible says that we are captives, that we are in jail. We don't have a get-out-of-jail-free card. There's no money, there's no ransom, but God pays it. So your second idea is this, Jesus buys your freedom from sin's captivity with the currency of his blood. That's what Jesus has done for you. Isn't that the picture you see in Scripture? If you go to the Old Testament and the best picture of redemption in the Old Testament is the Exodus, where God's people are captives in the Old Testament. They're captives to the Egyptians. And there's all these plagues, right? And you get to the last plague, and what is it? people of God who are captives put blood of the lamb over their doorposts, and God uses that to deliver the people from Egypt through the blood of the lamb. You see it in the law where offerings of sacrifices and the blood of bulls and goats were sacrificed for sin, and then you come to the New Testament, and you see Jesus and what does John the Baptist say about Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He doesn't just cover sin. He takes it away. He's the final sacrifice. See, Christ pays the price for our freedom with the currency of his blood. First Peter, I want to show you this in Scripture in a couple of places. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19 say it this way. 
knowing that you were ransomed, this idea of redemption paid for from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That's Jesus paying the price of your sin with his blood. And then Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12 says it this way, that Jesus entered once for all into the holy places. That's Old Testament imagery, right? Where the priest would come and make offering for sin, and Jesus does it once for all. Not by means of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal, what's the word? Redemption. There's an old movie in the 90s, if you're around then, Amistad. Has anybody seen the movie Amistad? It's old, so I'm giving it away. Sorry. It's a great movie. My top 10. Amistad is roughly, very roughly based on a true story. In the 1830s, slave trade, the Spanish slave trade would take Africans from their homes and haul them to slave ships and make them work on slave ships to be delivered around the world as slaves. They were free men in Africa and they were made slaves. In Amistad, this movie recounts, at least in part, that story. The Spanish ship Amistad, where these Mende tribe of African men were taken against their will and made slaves on a ship. But these captives overthrew the ship. They overthrew the ship and they took control of the ship, but they began to drift and they drifted all the way to Cuba. And that day, they were Spanish property. And they were brought to the United States in the 1841. And there was an international trial that happened. And John Quincy Adams played in. And there's a scene, and there are liberties taken in here, but there's a scene, a courtroom scene, if you've seen the movie. A courtroom scene when they're arguing, and these men are still bound as slaves. And they're sitting in the courtroom as the guilty. And they begin to argue really about what everybody knows is true, that they were taken against their will, but they were basically arguing, if, are they goods or are they people who have freedom? And at one point in the courtroom, you see Sinke, the primary actor in the story, Jamon Hansu, you know, the guy that played in Gladiator, who was best friends with Russell Crowe as a slave? Him. I think he was in Guardians of the Galaxy as well. Just trying to help you out. And you know that if you've seen the movie, tell you what, if you don't have goosebumps in the next part of this movie, you might not have a pulse. And he begins to slowly say under his breath, chain, give us us free. And he begins to rise. Give us us free. Give us free. And they try to silence him, and he just screams even louder, and he stands up shaking his chains. Give us free. And it stuns the crowd, many of which were black freedmen. And those slaves 
released. And you know what? Those men were vindicated. That was justice. You need to go see the movie. It's an amazing scene to show you vindication and justice. But here's the thing. You and I were not taken from our homes like they were. See, Adam and Eve rebelled against God and left their home. You and I, Romans 1 through 3, we're guilty. We are guilty. And we've earned for ourselves the wages of sin, which is captivity. And yet, we have a judge, a loving judge, who even though we are guilty as captives, bought our redemption. We are guilty as sin. And yet our God has forgiven us at the high cost of his son. You see, when we leave that and we come to faith in Jesus, we're not vindicated. That's not just like we got what we deserve. The only response is worship. The only response is rejoicing to the message of the gospel that we don't deserve, that we could never earn. See, Jesus buys our freedom by his grace from sin's captivity with the currency of his blood. So when you sing, when you come to church and you sing of the blood of the lamb, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, I hope you remember the high co- both the high cost and the grace in which you were acquitted by God from. That ought to make us rejoice. When we take communion, we ought to remember the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus in that kind of way that we did not deserve, and yet he's given us a freedom. And it ought to produce in our lives a gratitude. It ought to produce in our life those good works that we talked about that come out of justification. See, redemption deals with our problems, so we relate to that really well. It deals with man's problem. Justification deals with sin's problem, but there's a problem we might not, third, really have in our mind's eye. We have a Godward problem, if you will. And from a human perspective, if you're looking at it, you're kind of going, God has a dilemma here. And the dilemma is God is just. He's a just God, so how does he forgive and redeem and justify unjust people and still be just? And the answer is the same. The answer is the Sunday school answer, kids. It's Jesus. Here's your third point. Your third DNA marker in this text comes from verse 25. Jesus, his sacrifice, that's redemption, satisfies God's justice towards sin and shows his love for us. Listen, it doesn't make the coffee cup. It doesn't make the verse hanging on your wall. The Bible over and over again says things like, Exodus 37, God loves, God is a God of loving kindness, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. It says that Jesus, or God is angry with sin all day. And so, think about it. You go, man, I, I got a problem with God being wrathful and God being just. I mean, can't God just be the God who just forgives people in spite of them? 
and not deal with, with, with what they've done and punishing people? That sounds really harsh. But let me ask you a question. If someone comes in your home and harms your child, an adult comes in your home and harms your child, and you go before the judge and they catch them, and they go before the judge and the judge shows, shows up that day, and the judge says, you know, I'm feeling really gracious today. I'm feeling really loving today. I'm just going to let this guy off. No charges. What do you think about that judge? Do you think that judge is a judge of character? Do you think that judge is just? No, you expect that judge to punish the evil that happened. There's got to be a payment. Not one person, not one parent in this room would say, sounds good to me. And the same is true with God. If he's going to both be loving, and his loving kindness extends forever, he's not God unless he is also just. So there's got to be a solution, and the solution is Christ. That Christ was willing to be that punishment that you and I deserve. That God was willing to put his son on the mercy seat, if you will. To let him be sacrificed for our sins. And here's the amazing thing. The amazing thing about it is, effectively, when God looks on someone who doesn't know his son, basically that person, the Bible says, is at war with God, and God is, in a sense, at war with them. But here's what happens, and it's beautiful. This idea of propitiation in this text, do you see it in verse 25? I mean, if you share it, I don't even know if you know how to spell it. I didn't know how to spell it. Verse 25, propitiation, it literally reads... God put Christ forward as the mercy seat to satisfy, to appease God's justice. Christ is the punishment for you and me. The punishment that we deserve, Jesus took. He was the scapegoat, if you will. See, Jesus didn't just die to take away our sins, even though he did. That's redemption. But he also died for the justice, for the wrath of God. You know in scripture when God is pleased with the sacrifice, you see it in the Old Testament, you see it in the New Testament, where our lives are a pleasing sacrifice to God. That's what he did, that you might be made new, that you might have life in Christ. So he goes from being at war with you and me to having peace. That's where peace comes from. It comes from Christ sacrificing and satisfying God's justice. And the amazing thing about it is when you come to Jesus, you're no longer an enemy of God, but you are family. You're family, like no in-between of that. What we often think about with that is, okay, he satisfies God's wrath, so we're just kind of neutral now, and the two warring parties go on their way. And one goes, there's a peace treaty, and one goes one way, and one goes the other way, and God says, no. When we, when you make peace with God because of faith in Jesus Christ, you're now family. Not neutral. He looks upon you with favor and love. That's what 1 John 4 says. Look at 1 John 4, verse 9 and 10. I want you to not only understand that, but feel that. Feel the truth of that, that God once looked on you one way, and now you're family. You're in his family. You're adopted sons and daughters. First John 
chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, says this, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, what we've been saying for a number of weeks, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the what? The mercy seat, the propitiation for our sins. He took our place to satisfy God's justice. That's how God creates a solution to his justice and the problem of his justice. You're his kid. He loves you. So there's some pretty tight theology in there that we've just shared. There's the gospel DNA that you see, justification, redemption, propitiation. Go share with your friends and neighbors. But let that sink in to how amazing the cross of Christ is that it deals with your legal problem. It deals with the captivity in which sin puts us in with no bail that he redeems us, he ransoms us, and then he satisfies the justice and wrath of God that God has to demand because of our sin. That's amazing. That's amazing grace. But look at where Paul goes. He gives some really clear application in verses 25 through 31. And we'll walk through this quickly. He says this. This was to show... so. So all this truth, this gospel truth, all that I just unpacked for you about the cross, why did he do it? To show his divine forbearance that God is a patient God with you and me. You know, the, the, if you go on the street and you, you poll people and you ask them what they think about God, you are likely at some point to hear people say, I hate God. He's a tyrant. He's not loving. He's mean He's shown his forbearance for us of our sin. He's merciful. That's what he's saying. God is a merciful God. And I know you're tempted and I know I'm tempted. When the hurricanes and the storms of life come or the junk that happens in our lives, whether it's in the church or outside the church, and we go, God, why would you let that happen? Why are those people in our church so mean? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? Come back to the gospel. Come back and remember God's forbearance and love for you in spite of you. When people let you down. People that know better let you down. People that are supposed to be Christians let you down. Been there, done that. Come back to the truth of the gospel and God's patience and love for you and extend that to other people that you're mad at that you're frustrated at, that need forgiveness like you. See, God is merciful and patient. And then as we look at ourselves, look, look at verse 27. Here's another implication or application. That what, then what becomes of our boasting? Because that's what he's dealing with with the Jews here in the Roman church. I have the law. I'm good. I have circumcision. I'm good. You can't boast in any of that. Because all of what we just talked about with the gospel, redemption, justification, propitiation, didn't start with you. It was God's work in your life that brought you to faith and repentance. 
So there's no boasting. Well, I believe this. I come to church. I'm really smart, so I figured it out. There's no boasting. Because of what God has done for us, we can't boast. We can't brag. There's no hubris that ought to come out of that because it's on him. He's granted you his grace apart from your works. And then last, certainly not least, look at it in verse 30. Or excuse me, verse 29. He says, is God the God of Jews only? So remember this church, right? There's Jews and there's Gentiles. And they have some different cultural, they have some cultural differences. The Jews want the Gentiles to get circumcised. They want them to follow the law. This is the problem, one of the problems in the New Testament. The Gentiles are like, no way. Like, I'm going to eat meat sacrificed to idols in front of you. Stumbling block. All the way through the New Testament. And, and here's what Paul says to that. Is God a God of the Jews only? Is he not God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles, since God is the one, is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. There are no mandates here. There's no mandates that the Jews get to mandate something to the Gentiles because salvation is by faith. And the Gentiles shouldn't put stumbling blocks in front of the Jews in their churches either. There's no mandate. I see it this way, so you got to do this. No, it's faith in Christ. And so what Paul is getting at is that there's unity in the church. There's unity in the church even with the differences that are crystal clear. One of the beautiful things that I've observed in this, our church in the last year and a half, there's all kinds of things, right? If you don't do this and say this, then you're that. Whether it's masks or mandates, much of the church is dividing over secondary, third level, tertiary issues. I have not seen that here. I haven't. A lot of us have different opinions about a lot of things. Whether it's political, whether it's COVID, whether it's cultural, we have opinions. But you know what I've noticed? I've noticed unity even amongst diversity of thought. You know what that is? That's Christian maturity. It's Christian maturity not to give people a faith who you might disagree with, you might cross T, dot I differently to give them the Heisman to break fellowship over secondary, tertiary issues that you might disagree with. That's the world we live in. That's the air that we breathe. But as believers, there ought to be unity, unity around the gospel, the truths of the gospel. And we don't give up that. We don't give up. We're not this ecumenical church that gives up the truth of the gospel and the truths that God's word is clear on. But man, I've been so encouraged. I've been so encouraged by this body's maturity. And you know what it says? It says that you get the gospel. It says that you understand the implications of the cross are more uniting, united than any differences that you have. And I just want to commend you to continue, to continue to keep the gospel central to the way that you interact with one another, to the way that you interact with people in your community group, in different ministries of the church, I'm so thankful, and I've said this many a time, but I talk to pastors who their church is so divided because of some of these issues. This text says because of the gospel, we ought to be unified. We ought to get along with some of our differences and move along and have the grace to let other people be. Well, in closing, I want to come back to Miss Cheryl. Actually, I want to come back 
Miss Cheryl and her cousin, Harry. You know, it would have been worth it. It would have been worth it for us to go to Homa. Just to simply serve and put on a roof and help clear debris and help muck out rooms. It would have been worth it to do that. Because we're made in the image of God and we're meant to help people in His common grace. But let me tell you something. When someone like Miss Cheryl is sitting in front of you and pouring out their heart and all their desperate need, all their compounded issues that are going on, and one of the strongest guys that you've ever seen is on the roof and he's hard and his hands are hard and he asks you to pray for him and he's squeezing your hand as you're praying for him so hard. Almost broke my hand. I'm trying to think, how can I get done with this prayer? You know what they want? They want you to give you to you want they want you to give them the hope, the hope and the confidence of the truth of the gospel, which is even beyond the help. To know that pithy statements that are true, time will heal, time will help. They want to be able to point toward the truth of the gospel to say there is hope. That you can have that hope in Christ. You can demonstrate that hope by serving. But the hope that we have is in Christ that he's changed your status from unrighteous to righteous because of Jesus. He's paid for your freedom with the currency of his blood. And he's satisfied the demands of a holy God. You see, when you're a Christian and you come into a hard situation like that, not only can you offer physical help, but you can offer the help that only the blood of Jesus provides. To give real help to the hurting, to point them toward the one who says, weary, heavy laden, I can give you rest. That's the Savior that we have. So your takeaway this morning, C3, is this. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing, can wash away your sins. Do you know this truth? It's the most fundamental truth that you could ever believe or know. Trust by faith alone in the gospel of Jesus who's justified you, who's redeemed you who has paid for your punishment on a cross. Let me pray. Father, what a great picture of all the work that Jesus has done on the cross to deal with our problems, to deal with problems that separate us from you, that we have standing not on our own, but because of Jesus and and the fact that he is right before you that we've been freed from the captivity of our sin by the currency of Jesus' blood that he offers for us. And that you, through your son, have satisfied the demands of a just God. We got nothing to do from that but humble ourselves and boast only in the cross. We love you and thank you for this message, this truth. Help us revisit it day after day, because life is hard. There are storms in life, 
that we often need reminding of the truth of the gospel, which gives us hope, which gives us relief, which gives us comfort, which gives us confidence to stand in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and sing with us this morning?